Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening to uh, to our Andover Community Reads episode of this podcast. We are going to be talking about the library book by Susan Orling, and we're going to be looking at chapters one through six. Uh, I'm Stephanie Smith. I am a reference and cataloging librarian here at MHL. I'm Justin Tremini. I'm a reference um, and semi-tech librarian at MHL. And uh, we're here to talk to you about the library book. So hopefully you're reading along. Uh, if you haven't been, then there are copies available at the library. Um, we also have ebook copies available, audiobook copies on CD, and also digital books available. So you can request them through the catalog, or you can find them on Overdrive, or give us a call at the reference desk, and uh, we'd be happy to help you get your hands on a copy. Um, so our community read for this book will be going through the spring, so there's plenty of time to get a copy of the book and read it, and it's, uh, it's a really enjoyable book. We've both read it before and are coming back to it for this podcast, so we hope you'll join it and enjoy it. Um, you can definitely take a look at our website. Um, I would suggest searching for Andover Reads 2021. Um, we don't have a really good URL, a short URL to get there. We're going to work on that. But check out the website. Um, there's a lot of information about the book. There's some uh, discussion questions, and there's some really good sort of primary sources, um, specifically speaking about the fire at the Los Angeles Library back in 1986 that are really good to take a look at and to supplement your reading with. Definitely. So I guess on that note, do we want to start in by talking about the description of the fire itself? Yeah, let's you do know, it. Sort of the, the main event. Mm-hmm. Uh, although the book does cover a lot of ground. Yeah, that's maybe something to think about or to talk about is like, how would you describe this book to somebody who hadn't read it? Like, or I guess here's something to start with, like, have you read um, some of any of Susan Orlean's books before? I haven't. This is the only one I've read. And okay. it's funny because I, I listened to it on as an audio book probably two or three years ago now when it was mm -hmm. fairly new. Uh, and I really liked it. And I don't know why I never pursued any of her other books. Mm. Like, often I'll do that. I don't know if they just weren't available on audio, which is usually how I access nonfiction books. Um, but maybe I should. Yeah. <laughs> Have you? Yeah, I read her previous book, which was a biography of Rin Tin Tin. Yeah. Um, which was really interesting because, uh, like, my understanding of her style, and that's the only other one I've read. Yeah. I know that she, I think she wrote, extensively for the New Yorker prior to that right? rings a bell yeah and it's got some of that style of like mm. kind of she takes a jumping off point and she kind of covers a lot of different topics so in yes. the Rin Tin Tin book it was ostensibly like a biography of this like superstar dog but it right uh, apparently like, the history of the dog was tied the, the dog was an actual like hero dog in World War One that then became a movie yeah. star so it really weaves in and out of the history of like dogs and dog yeah. breeds and the war and all that. And I guess that's kind of what's interesting about this book is like ostensibly, I think she sat down to write this book about this fire. Yeah. But it really branches off into like all these different aspects of, of libraries and what they mean. Definitely. Yeah, there's a lot of threads running through it. I mean, the library, certainly the central library in Los Angeles is definitely the theme that everything keeps tying back to, but. Mm. But in some ways, it does feel like a few different books happening. Yeah. Um, 
which, you know, I kind of enjoyed. I felt like it kept my attention well. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked getting, you know, kind of jumping from from topic to topic. I mean, she could have done it more of a true crime book, you know, mm-hmm. just focus on the fire and uh, the main suspect, Harry Keith, and kind of that whole aspect. But I like that it's a bit more wide ranging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, and she uses that structure of like opening up the chapter sections with sort of just like seemingly random list of, of books and their yeah. call numbers and everything. And in a way, so I think it sort of creates a structure of you're, you're wandering through this massive library, yeah. you're pulling random books off of the shelf, and then a story is kind of being woven through that structure, I suppose, in a way. Yeah, I really, I really liked having the chapters start with those, actually. Yeah. I mean, I like that she included the call number, too. This mm-hmm. is the cataloging part of me coming through, I'm sure. Right, uh, I do right. have an inordinate fondness for the Dewey Decimal System, and so it was fun, as someone who knows that system quite well, to, to sort of look and see what the call numbers are, and... Uh, Mm-hmm. You know, know just from that kind of what the books are going to be about beyond the title. I don't know that she was expecting that. I don't know what level of familiarity she assumes in her readers with the Dewey Decimal System. But... I like to think it's like a little Easter egg for the librarians yeah. that are reading. Because right? you know, like, it's like a prerequisite almost if you work in the field. Like, you, you probably right. either have read this or you're interested in reading it. So. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. But it tells it tells a very different story if you sort of look at the subjects indicated by the call numbers versus the titles mm-hmm. uh, which which i also kind of appreciate the mm-hmm. titles make more sense with the content of the chapters as like way posts but um but i mean like looking at chapter one by the call numbers you've got literature social services libraries and religion mm-hmm. uh, christianity specifically mm-hmm. to be sort of you know sort of vague um and I feel like most of those do come up with, with possible exception of Christianity. Although I do think she takes kind of a spiritual approach to books. Yeah. I mean, that, that comes through more in a later chapter when she's talking about trying to burn the book. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Here's a quick cataloging question. Like in, yeah. in the first, that story to begin on the very first book listed, what's, yep. what's with the X in front of the call number there? You know, that is a good question. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that we would use at MHL. Mm-hmm. So I'm not positive. Often in the 800s, which is for literature, you will put a letter in front to indicate, like, the country of origin. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, the 810s are structured to deal with American literature. And as a library in America, you know, in the U.S., we would assume that American literature is like American as in United States, not as in North American. Mm-hmm. Um, but say if you're a library in Canada, or, you know, well, you would rather use that number for American literature as in Canadian literature, since they're also part of North America. Um, and, and so you might do that by just saying, well, we're in Canada and we're just going to use the number and assume that it's Canadian. Or you might do that by putting a C in front of the call number. Or like if you wanted to indicate Jamaican literature in English, you might use, because, you know, Jamaica is part of North America, you might put a J in front of it. Now, the 808 is a more general number. Usually, uh, I would think that that's about where you would find either 
books about a book or um, like a how-to guide for writing. So I'm not sure what the X is doing there, honestly. But I should look that up. Yeah. Seems like something I should know. But we don't we don't use it, so it hasn't ever been personally personally applicable to me. It's interesting because then in chapter two, yeah, there's two of two of them with X's. Right. So I almost feel like that would be something you would see in a catalog to show that like a book had been withdrawn and it was still in the catalog, but. I'm just yeah. making that up. Um, yeah, I mean, normally if it's withdrawn, it shouldn't be in the catalog Right, anymore. right. I wonder if the, I mean, I suppose it could be, yeah, and it's funny because those are both in the 600s where I haven't heard of a letter being at the beginning like that. I always wonder if it's something to indicate that it's like part of a special collection. Mm. Um, you know, or if it's some kind of shelving indicator. Yeah. It's like these aren't with the rest of the 600s hmm. um, so i'm assuming then like thinking of that that these are probably specific call numbers to the like la county library system that would also right? be my guess yeah. although i'm a little bit surprised because i feel like usually big cities would use library of congress rather than yeah. Dewey. Yeah. um but but yeah i also assume right so the call numbers are going to be specific to the library mm -hmm. um because two libraries, even two libraries that use Dewey might end up assigning a different call number or a slightly different call number to a title for various reasons. Mm -hmm. um, but hopefully the various reasons are that, you know, they feel like the patron is going to find it better mm -hmm. in their collection at that number. Um, but, but sometimes it's a matter of specificity. Mm -hmm. You know, if we have a huge collection of cookbooks, then I'm going to give each cookbook the most specific number possible because if I gave them all just a short general number it wouldn't be that useful mm -hmm. um you know whereas if you're a library with a smaller cookbook collection you maybe don't need to be as specific in the call number mm -hmm. you know like if you have a hundred books versus a thousand books in the cookbook section you just you know it's easier to find them among the hundred with a shorter number than it would be among the thousand mm -hmm. so I would think the call numbers are specific to some library and presumably Los Angeles. But, yeah. Um, well, I'll say if any, if anybody's listening to this and you know what the X means, send us yes. an email at our desk at mhl.org. Yeah. I would love know. to know. Yeah. Curious to know. Uh, I'm going to try to do a little research into that also. Mm -hmm. That would be, that would be very interesting. Yeah. The, the Dewey decimal system does actually have a blog. Uh, hmm. as I, as I know, because I consult it often. <laughs> um, so I might poke around on that too and see if they have any info. Mm -hmm. But if you're interested in how the Dewey Decimal System works, I highly recommend looking up the, the Dewey blog. The blog, yeah. That's, um, I, did, I wasn't, I feel like I probably looked at that when I was in library school, but I probably haven't seen it since. So yeah. 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 You know, if you're into, if you're into that sort of thing, I mm. recommend it, but mm. I'm biased. I love right. cataloging. So right. Um, but yeah, so I know I do, I do like that specificity and actually I feel like at one point and I don't have the page number for it, she talks about sort of the serendipity of kind of browsing in the nonfiction of a library. The one in her example is one that is arranged by the Dewey Decimal System and how, and how that can be. She, I think she finds it a generally pleasant way of browsing, mm -hmm. you know, as, as do I, but I wonder, I was also wondering when reading that to people who are not as familiar 
mm-hmm. with the Dewey Decimal System? Like, does it feel as useful or does it just feel sort of inscrutable and... Uh, Right, like, does it feel like gatekeeping in a way, almost? Right. Like, yeah, that's an interesting question. Yeah, you're right, because she kind of talks about the way that you would get two things next to each other in a certain way that you wouldn't necessarily have seen in a bookstore. Exactly. Um, which, yeah, there, I think it's one of those things where, I mean, it's part of the idea of the system is that it's not difficult, but you do sort of have to have it explained to you, or you right. have to, you know? But I think once you understand it, there is a logic to it and there's a sense to it. It does create those really beautiful situations where different things are, are placed near each other. Yeah. 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 I mean, I like to think so, but again. Mm. Yeah. We're on the inside. So yeah, yeah. who knows? Where my bias as a cataloger and someone very familiar with Dewey comes into it. Mm -hmm. So, um, so also if you're listening and you have any thoughts on using the Dewey decimal system, feel free to send those to us at our desk at mhl.org as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I'd certainly be interested to know that. And we're always kind of looking for ways to make sure that our collection really is accessible. There's no mm-hmm. point in cataloging a book if it can't be found. Um, like cataloging exists to make books findable. And if it's not achieving that, then, uh, you know, then it needs to be changed. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, of course, the other thing that would prevent you from finding books is if they've all been burned up in a fire. <laughs> <laughs> Great segue. I love yeah. That. That is I'm very sure true. Expect, I'm sure you can expect more of those from me. Yeah, that was, um, that was great. But it's interesting. That's almost the way the book works, right? Like it yeah. goes off on tangents and it's like, oh, remember there's this fire. And then we go yeah, back Yeah, remember to this giant fire. Yeah. So and I, let's... I was sort of shocked. I mean, it makes it makes sense. The fire occurred in 1980, 1986, I believe, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, they did not have an electronic catalog at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And at one point, it's on page 34 of my copy, um, but they mention that, or, you know, Orlean mentions that there's really no way to know for sure everything that got destroyed. Yeah. Um, because there, there wasn't an electronic record to check against like there would be today. And she also notes, any book accidentally shelved in the sections that burned, we will never know what, we, what they were, so we cannot know what we're missing. Which, I mean, totally, even with today's, you know, online catalogs, you're not going to know. If you like, did like an audit of everything that was left versus right. the catalog, but who's for the amount of books they're talking about here, like who's going to do that? Yeah, I mean, yeah. they estimated, I think, 400,000 burned. I think so. Um, you know, never mind the, yeah, in total, 400,000 books in the Central Library were destroyed in the fire. An additional 700,000 were badly damaged by either smoke or water, or in many cases, both. Mm-hmm. Um, which, yeah, is it's wild to me that, that they wouldn't know. But mm-hmm. I think that's just one way that librarianship has changed somewhat in the intervening years. Um, I wonder how much, too. Like, I'm sure other libraries took like a lot of lessons from this fire, you know, and, yeah. and like she does a good job of setting up kind of like the day of the fire, how much, you know, how they were like actually going through the process of making the library more fireproof or making the collection more fireproof, right. getting fire doors installed. And they just weren't quite there yet, but I'm sure. Oh. And what was the thing too, where back then it was sort of assumed that sprinklers were a bad thing for a book collection because water is more damaging than fire ultimately. Yeah. Which 
ultimately, yeah, I think we've learned that's that's not a good idea. But yeah, they do they do make a point of saying that just recently the American Library Association, the ALA, had started recommending sprinklers, and yeah. of course they hadn't been installed here yeah. yet. Yeah. So just like how many libraries like hopefully like took lessons from this fire in terms of right. anything, like from cataloging to the way you keep track of your materials to yeah. actual like physical structure and which is I guess is definitely harder to to deal with. Right. Like in your sort of fire prevention methods. I guess anybody who's been in MHL when a fire alarm goes off, you know, we have those big doors that automatically come right. down. Um, which can be kind of jarring, but ultimately, if there's an actual fire, it's really important. Right, um, to contain the spread of the flames to at least that section or that half of the building. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's interesting thinking about that, too, uh, from an MHL perspective. You know, I mean, that, the main staircase in the building is kind of like a big flue. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, there's really no divisions on that staircase, so it's just going to draw air right up through it, although, you know, hopefully we're never going to catch on a fire in the first place. Right. But. I mean, I wonder what's a more modern library, because I mean, at this point now, right. beyond like interior renovation, like the actual structural stuff, nothing has changed in MHL since, I believe it was the early 90s when the, yeah. the sort of newer edition was put on. I think. Yeah, like, so a more modern building, like, like, is that something right. you would never do now with like a staircase going straight up like that? Like, yeah, I, you know, I really don't know. It's yeah. a good question. And I don't, I mean, so obviously the building codes are going to talk about, you know, they will have fire safety mm -hmm. regulations in them or like, you know, fire prevention measures. But I don't know to what level those mm -hmm. go. Um, you know, how strict they are, how much they really think about the physical aspects of fire other than like having fire doors to stop, the, you know, to stop the spread of a fire that way but mm -hmm. um yeah whether a newer building would have less of a sweeping staircase what i think there was in in the this book um you know she's talking about at, at the central library in la that structurally those kind of almost like catacombs like she describes them the concrete and i haven't have you, looked at, have you looked at images or have you found it i haven't done enough research into it but i'm so curious to see structurally yeah. what that looks like I haven't found a lot of, I haven't found a lot of pictures. When I was looking yeah. for ones for the website, I struggled to find a lot of pictures, but I was also specifically looking for pictures that we could use without copyright infringement. Right. So yeah. uh, that definitely, that definitely limited it. So I have a friend who grew up in LA and used to work at the gift, at the gift store in the central branch. Mm -hmm. I'll have to ask her. I mean, I think the stacks are gone, but yeah. I don't know if she ever would have seen them. Probably not if they, Right, because didn't they get rid of the stacks after the fire? I'm trying to remember. Well, like, I, I feel like they did, but... Get rid of them as a place for storing books, at least. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, the working conditions there sounded miserable. And yeah. This comes up again later in the book, too, so we'll get to it more there. But uh, I, would not, I would not appreciate working in a building like that. No. <laughs> Uh, well, just the idea too, and the, she's talking about how books would be randomly just like jammed, not randomly, but like somewhat where they belong. Right. And I think we've, I'm sure we've all, all of us in the field have been in like library situations where are, that are not ideal and where books kind of have to just be kind of crammed wherever they fit in the general right. area. Um, but it seems like at that point in time, it was 
a little more extreme than it probably is nowadays. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, you're sort of seeing the foreshadowing of like, that's telling you like, this is just more literal fuel for the fire. Right. That happens. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's... I mean, yeah. So when you say fuel for the fire, that reminds me of one of the things that I found really interesting in her sort of chapter two and three, she really describes the, like the fire itself mm-hmm. um, and how this particular fire uh, achieved the chemical phenomenon known as a stoichiometric condition mm. where a fire achieves the perfect burning ratio of oxygen to fuel mm. uh, and how that's something that, that you almost never see outside of a lab. Yeah. But the con- it was like, it was like this building was designed to be the, the perfect, combustion chamber yeah i mean really really wild and you know how so many of the firefighters there you know who who were experienced firefighters had just never seen an inferno like it Mm -hmm. um yeah yeah, you would there were oh, like, yeah, you would hope in a newer building it would be better designed. I, well, yeah, I would really hope so. I mean, but then there are still a lot of older functioning libraries from the, before this time period, even. Definitely. Um, so hopefully, hopefully they're not quite, uh, you know, again, like that's, that just seems like you would almost like, it would almost be impossible to, to encounter the exact conditions that could create something right. like this. But this happened to be that, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was sort of like the perfect storm of library fires, mm-hmm. where just everything that could be wrong was wrong, or mm-hmm. I guess was right, you know, from the fire's point <laughs> from of view. From the fire's point of view, depending on your point of view, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was either absolutely perfect or, uh, you know, absolutely the worst possible situation that mm-hmm. you could get into. Um, and, you know, you have to assume that uh, that however the fire started, it wasn't like, oh, gee, this would be the perfect place for a fire. I right. mean, whether it was Harry Peak or someone else or, you know, a faulty electrical wire, I don't know. Um, like, they, they couldn't have known that it was going to, I mean, maybe, maybe they knew, maybe if it was a person they knew and hoped it would get this bad, but mm. somehow I doubt it. I mean, I don't know. I don't think your average, even your average arsonist, I don't, I guess you're getting into then like like the intentions of of arsonists, right? right? Like, does, is the idea? I mean, I don't, I know nothing about it, so I don't know like what no, the process, either. the thought process behind that. But is the idea to have like the biggest possible fire? Um, and in which case, then that you know, but you're yeah. right, like this person, unless they were somebody on the inside, unless it was somebody like right. a firefighter or a librarian or somebody, right? Would they have known that this would have been the situation that would create right? such a massive fire yeah yeah i mean i did i did find it interesting that at least according to this book most library fires in the u.s are a result of arson Mm -hmm. um which is not something i'd ever really stopped to think about before but yeah um not exactly comforting when you work in a library i mean there's not much you can like you know the other things can be fixed or prevented you know you can have fire doors you can have sprinklers and working alarm systems but there's really not much you can do to prevent arson yeah um i mean i can provide good customer service i mean we're lucky enough that we're directly next to the fire department which is is good but you're right provide good customer service like try to create an environment where people don't want to burn the building down i suppose exactly um um yeah we, you know, it's funny. I've worked in four different libraries in the area, and three of them were directly next door to the fire department. 
I, I was I driving. Don't know. I don't know why, but yeah, like I was driving through Salem, New Hampshire, the other day, and yeah. their their library is. I think it's kind of in a weird down to me weird because I'm just used to the kind of strip mall section there. But it yeah. was in a situation where it was right near like the middle school, the high school, and then I think the fire department and the town hall were kind of all clustered there. Right. So I guess that's kind of, you know, like typical city or town planning, right? That you sort of have all those things right. clustered. Although now as places are spreading out, you have a little more sprawl. Yeah. Maybe it's not quite like that. Yeah, I mean, definitely. So uh, Groveland has a lot of the public buildings in one kind of plaza. So it's... Mm. You know, I mean, clearly the town just owned that land. And it's like, well, we already own this land. Why are we going to buy more? We can put all our buildings here. So it's, you know, fire, police, town hall, library, all in kind of one parcel. Um, Middleton, the fire station is also right next to the library. Mm-hmm. Although it, I don't I don't get the feeling that it's part of a compound or anything or like, you know, one parcel. I think it was just happenstance. Uh, yeah. Town hall is further down the road there, but... I mean, same thing in Andover. I think I think the library was here before the fire department. I think I, so, yeah. I mean, I don't know where they were based before the current public safety building. That would be a question for our local history library. Well, there was a previous bill. I mean, because that current public safety building uh, was built I don't, maybe 10, 12 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it looks new. Yeah, So, but it was, there was, you know, the same kind of police and fire. I think the fire department was there. Yeah, it's, it's always yeah. been there, yeah. And okay. not, not always, always since I've right. been, which feels like forever, but <laughs> always that I've known it's been there. But yeah, it would be interesting to find out, like, you know, what was there first and was the fire department situated somewhere else? Right. Or, yeah. Well, maybe the next time, uh, maybe the next time Stephanie Odd is on chat, I'll, I'll hop on and ask her anonymously. There you go, yeah. <laughs> Pretend to be a patron. Yeah. Give her a good local history question. <laughs> she would love Why that. is the public safety building where it is Mm -hmm. is it because the library is the biggest fire hazard in town uh yes or no yes or no (laughs) but but yeah that that was sort of fascinating to me Mm -hmm. um i didn't really know what to make of her decision to burn a book to get yeah yeah i didn't really i mean i guess like i I would i would assume if i wanted to see what a book looked like burning i would just go on like youtube and search burning a book and i'm sure it's there yeah. Um, and it was funny when she was talking about like she didn't want something that would burn too long for fear because she lives in this area that's like where it's droughts and wildfires. Right. It doesn't want to, right. like maybe you shouldn't be doing it then. Yeah. Like, maybe that's not a good idea. These things can yeah. get out of hand, you know? I did have that thought too. She's like, well, I put it on a cookie sheet. I'm like, well. Mm-hmm. Like, I get what she's saying where she kind of, on a more philosophical yeah. level, talks about like, we shouldn't focus too much on the book as an object as much as we love books as objects. What's important is like what's inside that book, what it represents. You get into sort of philosophical conversations about like, is an ebook or an audio book the same thing as a physical book? And like, I tend to think, yes, it's about the knowledge contained, the words contained. The book is just a vessel for those ideas. And it was interesting to see her sort of talking about that. But to me, my ultimate, like, point I reach from that is isn't like let's burn a book because who cares yeah, no. You know? like no no yeah. I definitely I definitely do not want to burn a book after reading yeah it. no I didn't want to before still don't want to doesn't change yeah it doesn't change yeah mind. I mean it was interesting when she talked about how fast it burned like yeah for sure yeah yeah the, but I, I'll trust her on that right I don't need to I don't need to experience that myself yeah no 
But it's funny, I have been doing more thinking than usual since the pandemic started about the difference between physical books and ebooks, for example. Mm. Because I wasn't much of an ebook reader before. And then, of course, you know, when we were home, like everyone else was, I wanted to read. So I was like, well, I guess ebooks are the way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've come to appreciate them a lot more. But I do find that it's, for me, a slightly different experience to read them. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a lot harder for me to remember what I've read when I read it as an ebook. And I think it's because I don't have a visual anchor for it. Yeah, you get the little picture of the cover. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so small and you see it so so briefly. You know, maybe I'll remember the plot or, I mean, I'll remember parts of the plot the same, but I find that it's harder for me to keep track of, like, the title without that sort of visual anchor of, like, seeing the book um, mm-hmm. and handling the book. I mean, it's different to see my phone sitting on the copy table versus versus the cover of a book. I don't know that that makes one better than the other, but but that's something that I'd noticed recently. How do you experience, say, like listening to an audio book versus reading the physical book? Yeah, you know, and that's interesting too, because uh, a few years ago, I switched from a car that had a CD player to a car that didn't. And so mm-hmm. I switched from listening to audiobooks on CD to listening to, uh, you know, e-audio books. Mm-hmm. And I think it is also... I would say it's fairly similar. I think I never spent as much time looking at the covers of the physical audiobooks as I would with a book because, you know, you don't, you don't handle it as much. And if you're in the car, it's like, oh, okay, before I start driving, I'm just going to open this really quick and get the next CD on deck mm-hmm. so that when this one runs out in the middle of my drive, I don't have, you know, I don't have to like pull over to, to keep listening. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think that's been a little bit of a change in the same way, but not as notable because I never spent as much time handling like the CD case of an audiobook as mm. I would spend handling a physical, a physical copy. Um, that being said, I mean, there are a lot of things I love about the ebooks. I love that I can tap on a word to define it. Mm-hmm. And I will admit to once or twice reading something in print and trying that <laughs> and being like, oh, that isn't how this works. Yeah. I know I'm so uh, used to reading and having my phone right there just to sort of flip back and forth between, right. you know, looking up things in the phone and yeah. 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 I mean, you know, previously I was the kind of person who would always carry around a book in my purse. So the convenience, I mean, yeah, it's obviously more convenient not to have a book in my purse, but I ha- that hasn't been as much of a difference for me because mm-hmm. I would always have a book with me one way or another. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, certainly the convenience of being able to look things up um you know without switching media let's Mm -hmm. say um yeah I don't know but I agree I think I think it was interesting to think about the book as a physical object Mm -hmm. rather than I don't know rather than like a the only way to access that information right um but but yeah, I I was fascinated by the descriptions of the of the library up in flames. It's not, but like fascinated in a horrified sort of way. It was mm-hmm. it was painful to read. Yeah, um, the way that it kind of comes out too. It's like you can see this thing just getting out of control, and you know she talks about it first where like there would be a lot of like like in any probably public building, there's a lot of right. fire alarms. You get right. kind of like oh another one of these like time to go outside and. 
right. you know, maybe don't take it that seriously. And that that's what it seemed like until that moment where people saw smoke coming out. Right. And, thing. Um, and just the way that it sort of snowballs from there into like yeah. something really, really intense. Yeah. That was so interesting. Yeah. Sort of chilling. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like how, yeah, I, I was really just struck by how awful it would be to think it was a false alarm. And then, as you say, to see that first wisp of smoke. Mm-hmm. And realize that, like, no, this is maybe for real. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that I think, you know, she talks about, like, the staff members who are, like, in tears. And there's certainly a level of, like, you know, I think for all of us, and this is a little toss-up in the air now, but, like, typically in our normal lives, like, right. our workplace is, like, our second place, you know, and we have yeah. such a connection to that place. But I think on a whole other level, like, what a library is and what it represents, particularly if you're a librarian. Right it's even more of an intensity of that, of you feel this yeah. real strong connection to the building itself, you know? Right. And I think so to see, not only to see like a very important physical place in your life, but also something that represents something so important, go up in flames. It sounds really horrible. Yeah. 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 And I think, I mean, at one point she mentions that part of why libraries are so special increasingly now is that because they're sort of a third place mm-hmm. um, or like, you know, a place that's one of the few remaining places that's really open to anyone. I mean, let's see if I can find it here. Maybe, maybe not, but all, all these bookmarks. Nah, I don't know. I've lost that page, but she talks about how, you know, the library is really one of the few places where you can just show up. You don't need to buy anything to stay there. You don't need to be a member. Um, There's really very few barriers to entry. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in that regard, you know, yeah, when a library is burning, it's sort of, sort of, I mean, not necessarily the heart of the community, but certainly, yeah, symbolic of something that is accessible to everyone or that's supposed to be accessible to everyone. you know, whether or not it always, it always is, but, um, but that was also something interesting to read about, that, um, libraries have not always been as open and accessible to everyone Mm -hmm. as, as we might think, and specifically that libraries were segregated, um, certainly in the South, but I'm guessing in the North, too, if not, you know, if not officially, then it was, like, a thing that everyone knew. Yeah, I think so. I mean, definitely even the, the history of the field, I mean, beyond being racially segregated, right. which it definitely was, I mean, it was segregated by class yeah. um, in the early days. And, and right. it wasn't until sort of the advent of the, the public library that then you at least cut out some of the class segregation, but not the, the racial segregation at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the idea yeah. when it was talking about the director of the um, LA library system being the yep. director in Atlanta. Yeah. That was what the last public library system to to no longer be segregated yeah to integrate yeah 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 and that even even still I mean I think it was in the early 2000s but shortly before he worked there where they had a big scandal uh you know involving firing white librarians to promote african-american librarians and um you know that sort of backfiring um and you know You'd hope that by the 2000s, we'd be doing better than that, Mm -hmm. Um, than sort of like, I mean, illegal firings, basically, in the name of diversity. And like, I would love to see a more diverse staff. Um, 
although you know not because of illegal <laughs> illegal firing right. but um but it did sort of get me thinking on like why why do we still see this lack of diversity among library staff and like mm-hmm. what can be done um you know i mean like if i quit today i have no idea who they're get, you know who would be hired to replace me mm-hmm. so like probably probably another white woman because that's who the majority of the candidates are yeah. um it's hard i think i mean i think part of it is probably just because people of color don't see themselves reflected in the staff at most public libraries. Therefore, I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, you talk to have maybe like, I was just talking to a friend of a friend the other day who is curious about getting into the field and they had just never really thought that it's a possible career. And when it struck them, it's like, Oh, wow, this would be perfect for me. You know? And I think a lot of people don't necessarily see themselves in the role. For me, I kind of, stumbled into the field I wasn't looking for it and then it was like wow this is right for me right I think probably for if you've never in your life seen somebody who looks like you in that position you you would probably be even less likely to to even attempt to get into the field or think that you could yeah no I I agree I think that is I think that is a big part of it yeah it just if you never see yourself there it just doesn't occur to you that that's an option Mm -hmm. um I think also I mean you know, most libraries, certainly the ones that pay better, you need a master's degree to have Mm. a, you know, a librarian position. There are obviously paraprofessional positions that don't require the master's degree, but, you know, the time and cost of obtaining a master's degree is going to be a barrier, not necessarily to people of color, but, you know, to any person who doesn't have the time and money to spare to pursue a two-year, two-year master's degree. I mean, definitely not, not that I would necessarily advocate for getting rid of it, I think mm-hmm. there are ways, you know, around that or to make a master's degree just more attainable in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, scholarships, for example, to help with the money side of things. Um, or, you know, job, you know, getting a paraprofessional job that will support you while you while you pursue the master's degree. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I was looking online and uh, there aren't a lot of statistics, but I think, you know, definitely... Uh, journals have, you know, like library field journals have looked into it. And I think the most recent one I found online, yeah, was from a May-June 2017 issue of Public Libraries Online, although that was based on a 2014 study that found that 87.1% of librarians identify as white and 81% as female. Um, So, you know, I think libraries are for everyone has been a big campaign within the library community lately and i think that's great um but i'd like to see ways to build on that more like librarianship is for everyone Mm -hmm. um it's a thorny problem it is definitely but Um. yeah beyond the scope of this podcast yeah yeah, i don't know if we're gonna solve it but definitely something to think about and i think Yeah, it's something um, to bring some more awareness to. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you know, it is. If anyone out there listening wants to know what it's like to be a librarian, like also feel free to drop us a line. I mean, yeah, I think definitely. I mean, I've, uh, periodically we have people you know come into the reference desk and they're curious. Yeah. And like, I think I could definitely say everybody I think loves to talk about this. Everybody yeah. on staff would love to like talk to people about our experiences yeah. and what it's like being in the field and all that. And I think 
collectively we do have a lot of years of experience yeah in different settings and in different libraries within the field so yeah please like let us know if you're interested yeah. um and i suspect that that would hold true for just like most librarians in general certainly public librarians you yeah. know uh like you could probably ask any public librarian in the country and they would most likely be willing to tell you what it's like to be a librarian. Yeah, they would probably be enthusiastic to, yeah. to tell you about that. Yeah. I mean, in my experience talking to other librarians, we like to talk about our work. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, if you have questions, let us know. Please do, um, yeah. That's what we're here for. <laughs> but I guess we should wrap it up soon. But I think the main other thing is that stuck out to me from these first few chapters was um, the description, Orlean's description of her experience as a patron as a kid, just mm -hmm. because that was nice and made me think back to using the library when I was a kid, and also the long list of different things that uh, the city librarian of Los Angeles does. Mm. That was really interesting to, mm -hmm. to see all of the different types of things that he was involved with. Um, that you wouldn't necessarily, even me working in a library, I wouldn't have necessarily thought of quite all of those things, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, I'm not a director, so. Yeah, it, I mean, it does seem like it's such a, like, it. she kind of presented, like, his entire day's meetings, and what yeah. he's in charge of 71, I think it said, uh, branches in the city. That's, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, so it, it would be just impossible for him to even get around to all of them on a regular basis, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, never mind. One of the, I think it was the Washington Irving branch that he visits on this particular day when she's shadowing him, which is a closed branch, but the library is still responsible for the building. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like that's something that comes up in like professional development opportunities that I've seen that are more geared toward directors. Like, oh, so now you're a facilities manager. No right. one told you you'd be a facilities manager, did they? But yeah. here you are. And now you're trying to figure out, like, if your building has adequate HVAC. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, that's why, like, our previous director, when she retired, the town gave her, like, a hard hat. Because <laughs> that was, like, her whole thing was was doing all these wonderful renovations to the building. Right. But that was, like, a, that was her, almost her entire job, you know? Right, which is, you know, sort of wild. Because they don't, like, hint, they don't teach that in library school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, they, they do don't. not teach how to talk to architects, how to you know, oversee a project, how to figure out, you know, what to do, you know, if your HVAC system is up to pandemic standards, like, that's mm. not covered. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a funny, like, a side note from, like, talking about the the director of the um, LA library system. Yeah. I, I, there's something with, like, Orlean's, like, descriptions of people, and she describes him, like, tall, gangly, with a small, square head. I yeah. was like, that's, like, a very un like kind like description of this person and i looked up a picture of him and he's like a very normal looking person like i, I wouldn't describe him that way so like why does she go out of her way to to say that i mean i uh, guess it makes for a more interesting book it does yeah i mean i guess it, you get like i do appreciate a book that's descriptive in like so it's not just like here's a name and this right. is the person position but i guess you get into dicey territory when you're like describing the physical characteristics of people who yeah. maybe don't want to be described as having a small square head. I don't yeah. Know. <laughs> uh, I am I am looking forward to in uh, later chapters discussing some of the other historical characters that mm -hmm. come up. Mm -hmm. um, because there really are, yeah, she gets into some great descriptions, which 
maybe feel less weird because they're people who've been dead for a century. They're not around to object, but I think that's a little different. But yeah. You make a good point about like the living people and mm. uh, whether or not they appreciate her description. Right. <laughs> but but yeah, I uh, yeah, it was interesting to see the wide range of responsibilities that the city library of Los Angeles has. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly meetings. <laughs> Yeah, definitely, but, definitely. Um, and also, you know, it was interesting to see, she gives a pretty long list of, like, the different types of people who are waiting to get into the library mm-hmm. on the day that she happens to be there, you know, waiting for it to open. And that was, I think that was interesting, too. Certainly, if you haven't been to a big urban library in a while, you know, I mean, I feel like we don't maybe see, as, we certainly see a less very clientele than mm-hmm. Oh, definitely, yeah. Uh, Just the sheer number of people right. going in and out on on. A, I mean, the closest we would experience that would be going to like the Boston Public Library, right. where it feels like an infinite amount of people streaming yeah. in and out every single day. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I I appreciated that description, and you know, she certainly talked about uh, the homeless population waiting to get into the library, you know, to use the bathrooms and the computers and have a place just to be in out of the weather. Uh, but I appreciated that she also took some other descriptions of other people who were using the library, maybe not as a library. Like she mentioned seeing one woman who was sitting at a study carol sewing beads onto a sleeve. Like, not a particularly library-related activity, but I mean, fine. I mean, you know? I she even, like, like, reduced it to the, the point of talking about that the library is almost like a shortcut through that part of the city. Like, if you're going yeah. from one part of this, the, that neighborhood to another part, like, and, and I mean, I, I definitely have seen at MHL, like, people oh, who yeah. would, um, you know, maybe took the train, the commuter rail, mm-hmm. and then they, they might live, like, up more towards North Main Street, and, yeah. like, why wouldn't you, like, walk through those stairs, especially right. in the summer, in a cool building, versus, yeah. like, walking up a hill or whatever. Right. Yeah, or if, you know, like, this time of year, if the sidewalk outside is icy, yeah, right. like, why not walk through a heated building and walk up a stairs you know staircase that doesn't have ice on it yeah or yeah. of course i feel like mostly mostly with the uh kids and teens come in and take the elevator up and then yeah right. well that's just like <laughs> think about the front door bars. yeah definitely but th- there is that thing yeah yeah just of, like yeah, the no, library is like a physical structure you know yeah like, what what like she kind of doesn't she describe it as almost being like grand central station or something yeah you know? yeah yeah, certainly in terms of the number of people flowing through. Um, and that, again, gets to that image of, like, the library of, like, oh, as the heart of the community, like a physical right. heart with all these, you know, I guess that would make the patrons the blood or something, but all these... I like that. Yeah, sure. these physical bodies pumping yeah. through through and going, like, getting sent out to other parts of the community. Exactly. And hopefully taking with them the things that they've borrowed, but also the things that they've learned um, and kind of spreading that out. You know, and then coming back and making suggestions. And, I mean, we always, you know, we take purchase suggestions. We want to know what people are looking for so that we can offer it. But, you know, it's sort of a feedback, I guess, kind of like a feedback loop. It's not just that we're pushing information out to the community, I hope, but that we're also absorbing information from the community and using that to mm, to change what we offer or to, to guide what we offer, you know? Um. I think it's a pretty good metaphor. The library is the actual heart of the community in that way. Uh, or, you know, that's how 
how I would like to think that we're operating. But um, I guess the last thing that would be fun to touch on is her description of visiting the library as a little kid and how she describes pretty early on that it was one of the first places that she really felt like she had autonomy. Um, because, you know, she would come in as a kid, and even as a young kid, she said she and her mother would kind of go to separate sections, collect their stuff, and then they'd join up again to check out books. And she also compared it to, um, to the experience of shopping with a parent, where she knew when shopping, her parent, you know, her mom wasn't going to probably buy what she wanted. But in the library, she could have whatever she wanted. It was all free. Mm -hmm. There was no reason that she couldn't. Um, mm. And that really struck me. I... I hadn't thought of it in the same way, but I would say it was a similar experience for me. Mm -hmm. Certainly, um, you know, I don't recall any limitations being put on what I could take out of the library versus, you know, definitely there were limitations on what my parents would buy me from the store. Right. <laughs> I mean, do you have in like an earliest library memory? Nothing really stands out to me. I remember generally being taken to the children's department um, of the Beverly Public Library as a little kid because that's where we lived. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we went super often, mostly because the parking lot there was small. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it could be a hassle to find parking. But mm -hmm. we went, I think, fairly regularly, and I enjoyed it. I had a library card. I liked picking out books, but... I don't have any one, like, specific memory. I, I was much more excited when we moved to Manchester when I was about, when I was 10. And uh, it was a small enough town, and I was old enough that I could go to the library, like, totally by myself. I could walk or I could ride my bike. Mm -hmm. And uh, to be able to go to the library whenever I wanted, and mm -hmm. not, like, when one of my parents could give me a ride was very exciting. Uh, yeah. And I think my library use really skyrocketed at that point. <laughs> like as much, as much as I could carry back in a bag on the handle of my bike. Mm -hmm. um, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I have like one of my earliest memories was the Georgetown Public Library, just mm -hmm. going there with my mom. Yeah. Um, but then when I was growing up, I, I grew up in a really small town in New Hampshire and I would walk to school and the library was like this tiny building yeah. that was kind of almost like the halfway point between like my home and the school. Yeah. So literally every day after school, I would go in and get books. Yeah. Um, so I definitely have like a ton of fond memories of that. And yeah, like yeah. that, I, I think, you know, what the, what Susan Orlean was saying about that autonomy piece of like, you know, for me as a child, like being able to go into a place by myself yeah. and get whatever I wanted and then leave. Um, it's like almost like the first piece of responsibility you're given. Definitely. Right. It's the first kind of yeah. like form of identification you're given in some way or like the, the first thing yeah. you can put in your wallet or whatever. Right. right. Yeah. And it's the first kind of sense of responsibility. I think a lot of kids yeah. are given in their lives, which is a huge thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, a, and a sort of first sense that you know, you are part of the community and you do have an effect on it. Like, you know, because you need to bring the book back so mm -hmm. that someone else can use it. It's not, you know, I think it does also give a sense of participating in a community as well as, yeah, like, oh, I have a, I have a card that I can put in my wallet too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, That's a good point. That's something to like bookmark for when, when we have like a children's librarian on here just to, yeah. cause I, I hadn't, I guess, cause we're not as exposed to 
kids coming to libraries right. for the first time, but I hadn't really thought about that. But yeah, like that's that's teaching kids about the importance of community and being part of a collective and yeah. knowing the your like minor kind of decision of whether or not to like draw on this book, like it affects right. other people that are gonna use that book at a point in time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny, the thing that made me think of that just now, I'll admit, was Harry Potter when uh, mm -hmm. early on you know, he's like, gee, who could be sending me a, a letter? I'm not even a member of the library. Like, so mm. it couldn't even be them sending me a rude note asking for books back. That's so cruel that, like, his aunt and uncle didn't even let him have a library card. That's, yeah. wow, awful. Yeah, I mean, very Dursley-ish. Yeah, but, very Dursley. <laughs> but it's, you know, that kind of made me think that, yeah, you know, having a library card as a kid is about responsibility, but also it does connect you into the community that way. Mm -hmm. um, it's not, it's, yeah. It's an interesting, it's an interesting way to think of it, mm -hmm. like a community connection, as well as an opportunity to get free stuff. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting Which is, that, you know, I, the best part. But. That's the best part for everybody. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting how she d has that trajectory that I think we see a lot of like, she uses the library until she becomes like an autonomous being in the mm -hmm. sense of she can buy her own books. And right. then she almost gets to the point where she says, why do we even need libraries? And then she has her own child. And then she is like, oh, this is why we have libraries and falls right. in love with it all over again. Right. I hope that's not everybody's trajectory because I want to think that we never lose people. And I want to think the people who don't have children will still come back if we do lose right. them. Um, but I think it's a common trajectory. I think people and then people will actually almost see the importance of the place again through their own children's eyes. Yeah. Or through whatever brings them back. Maybe they come back to search for a job. And right. they're like, oh, cool, I can get, like, DVDs, or, like, I've been wanting to read this book, or, or anything. Exactly. Yeah. Right, or you come into print, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Or you come in, I mean, not so much these days, but certainly, like, you know, in the past, if I've been out and about in a town, it's like, oh, gee, I'd really like a bathroom. Well, the, the library will have a bathroom that I can use. Like, a good you little know, hack but, for, for anywhere, right? Yeah, 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 I mean, pretty much, like, unless it's a Sunday or late at night, there's mm -hmm. a good chance that the yeah. library is going to be open, and, like, they don't care why you come in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's no one there asking. Uh, you don't need to buy a coffee. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, I, I agree. I think that is a pretty common trajectory, that often people will use the library more as kids and then kind of drop off and then hopefully come back. Um, I don't know that I ever really stopped using the public library. But certainly, certainly less when I was in college. Yeah, I think for me, I only had a couple years because, I mean, I started working in libraries when I was 22. So yeah. it was only a few years. And I think I was using probably like the college library, right. you know, too. So yeah, it was a very short drop off for me. I yeah. mean, was, there was that like Pew Research from a couple of years ago that found that like the, the generation that most uses public libraries was millennials, which is yeah. surprising, right? Although at this point, I mean, this was from maybe 10 years ago when millennials were maybe a little bit younger. Right. It very well could be now. I mean, a lot of millennials have children of their own, so that, that right. could tie into it. But um, yeah, yeah. That's, that's interesting. Like we see, I feel like on the ground, we see a lot of senior citizens coming into the building. Um, yeah. But that's you know, and the I, day. I also wonder if it's like, well, that's who lives in Andover. I mean, that's, obviously yeah. not that Andover is exclusively populated by senior citizens, but mm -hmm. I think... Um, housing is out of reach for a lot of millennials in yeah, Andover. Um, you know, I mean, just there isn't that much affordable housing in town. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of the affordable housing that is in town is reserved for seniors. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like a 55 plus community. Um, 
And so I think that might, you know, I wonder how that would change if you work in a library that has more millennials and, you know, in the service area, mm -hmm. um, you know, a town with a lot of rental housing or, you know, a college town or something. Um, and, you know, of course, I'm like, well, I'm a millennial and, you know, all of my friends are library users, but probably there's some selective bias there. Yeah, <laughs> like, I think I most of my that. friends are librarians. Yeah. So, you know, kind of a, kind of a self-selecting group. Definitely, uh, yeah. I will, I will admit to being that person who, at an early Christmas dinner with my, with my now in-laws and their extended family, I was like, so who wants to learn about library ebooks? <laughs> Get out your library cards and I will show you. That's great because that's like the biggest like boon we've had towards like outreach to, to people who don't use libraries is, mm -hmm. you know, like, yeah, you can always bring that up. Right. Um, and like, you're going to find somebody who's like, oh, I didn't know that was a thing that could actually happen. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, you know, and especially for people who don't have a way of physically getting to the library or who work weird hours and, you know, that just don't line up with when the library is open. Well, you know, as long as you can manage to get there once to get a library card, the e-resources are always available. I mean, I feel like when I first started in libraries, it was like, did you know we have DVDs and yeah. CDs? And that's maybe not such a selling point anymore but some people are still surprised by that that's true they are yeah um, well now it's more like oh well i haven't thought about dvds in a couple of years but yeah depending on who yeah. you ask i guess i mean you know and I, increasingly the library of things is more like the oh did you know yeah that's um, true which is which is fun although I, I hope more people are knowing that now but yeah shout out to the library of things if you don't know about it um check out our yeah. website we got a lot of really cool stuff yeah yeah it's not really browsable. Even in normal times, it's not really browsable. You know, we're not going to leave the, it's mostly expensive stuff. We're not just going to leave that lying around, but, mm -hmm. um, but it's definitely worth, yeah, looking on our website, calling us, coming in and asking. Uh, it's now, it's now searchable in the, in the catalog. You can search specifically library of things. It's one of the options. Um, so like, you know, in the same way that you would limit your search to books or DVDs or whatever, you can limit it to library things. And I believe you can just do a null search yeah, where yeah. if you don't type anything in the search box, but you set it to library of things and hit go, it'll just show you everything that falls under that category. So that's another way to kind of browse what's on offer at our library and across the network. Um, so, you know, if you're bored after listening to this, that's what I suggest you do next. <laughs> the library of things. Yeah. 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 Check it out. That and the Web Dewey blog. Yeah. Um, Web Dewey, library things. Yep. And um, I guess that could be a segue into, I guess, just like looking at what are we, what are we reading for next, yes. next episode? That is a good question. We'll be starting with chapter seven. I don't have it in front of me, but I think it's chapter seven through 11. That sounds um, about right. Yeah, I think we're going through in groups of about five or six chapters at a time. There's 32 chapters total, and we will be having six episodes. So they're not all the same number of chapters. Um, okay, I have it here. Yes, chapters 7 through 11 for the next episode, which, uh, which will be dropping two weeks after this one does. So... Uh, but of course, the beautiful thing about podcasts is that you could be listening to this five years later and, you know, that still works too. So. And if you are, come and say hi to us at the library. Hopefully we're still there and yeah. uh, tell us you're listening to this. Yeah, we'd get a kick out of that. Yeah, totally. So do let us know. But yes, yes. next time, chapters 7 through 11, 
we'll be aiming to release the episodes every other Friday, a total of six episodes. And yeah, we welcome any comments. If you're reading it and you had any thoughts you wanted to share, send an email to our desk at mhl.org. We'll try to work it into the next episode. Uh, we would really love that. So even if you are listening to this later, send us an email. We love getting emails, um, especially ones that are not asking about, you know, sort of routine questions. We like getting the unusual emails. So get in touch. <laughs> well, I guess that about wraps it up for today then. Um, and we hope that, yeah, we hope you'll be listening to us next time. <laughs>